Check one. One. <clears throat> what up, though? Welcome back. It was a bitter winter. The stormy weather was followed by sleet and snow, and then by a hard frost, which did not break till well into February. The animals carried on as best they could with the rebuilding of the windmill, well knowing that the outside world was watching them and that the envious human beings will rejoice and triumph if the mill were not finished on time. Out of spite, the human beings pretended not to believe that it was Snowball who had destroyed the windmill. They said that it had fallen down because the walls were too thin. The animals knew that this was not the case. Still, it had been decided to build the walls three feet thick this time instead of 18 inches as before, which meant collecting much larger quantities of stone. For a long time, the quarry was full of snowdrifts and nothing could be done. Some progress was made in the dry, frosty weather that followed, but it was cruel work, and the animals could no, not feel so hopeful about it as they had before. They were always cold, and usually hungry as well. Only Boxer and Clover never lost heart. Squealer made excellent speeches on the joy of service and the dignity of labor, but the other animals found more inspiration in Boxer's strength and his never-failing cry of, I will work harder. In January, food fell short. The corn ration was drastically reduced, and it was announced that the extra potato ration would be issued to make up for it. Then, it was discovered that the greater part of the potato crop had been frosted in the clamps, which had not been covered thick thickly enough. The potatoes had become soft and discolored and were only a few were edible. For days at a time, the animals had nothing to eat but chafe and mangles. Starvation seemed to stare them in the face. It was vitally necessary to conceal this fact from the outside world. Emboldened by the collapse of the windmill, the human beings were inventing fresh lies about Animal Farm. Once again, it was being put about that all the animals were dying of famine and disease, and that they were continually fighting amongst themselves, and had resorted to cannibalism and infanticide. Napoleon was well aware of the bad results that might follow if the real facts of the food situation were known and he decided to make use of Mr. Wimper to spread to con a contrary impression. Hitherto, the animals had had little or no contact with Wimper on his weekly visits. Now, however, a few selected animals, mostly sheep, were instructed to remark casually in his hearing that rations had been increased. In addition, Napoleon ordered the almost empty bins in the store shed to be filled nearly to the brim with sand which was then covered up with what remained of the grain and meal. On some suitable pretext, Wimper was led through the store shed and allowed to catch a glimpse of, glimpse of the bin. He was deceived and continued to report to the outside world that there was no food shortage on the animal farm. Nevertheless, toward the end of January, it had become obvious that it would be necessary to procure, procure some more grain from somewhere. In these days, Napoleon rarely appeared in public, but spent all his time in the farmhouse, which was guarded at each door by fierce-looking dogs. When he did emerge, it was a ceremonial manner, 
with an escort dog of six who closely surrounded him and growled if anyone came too near. Frequently, he did not even appear on Sunday mornings, but issued his orders through one of the other pigs, usually Squealer. One Sunday morning, Squealer announced that the hens, who had just come in to lay again, must surrender their eggs. Napoleon had accepted, through Whimper, a contract of 400 eggs a week. The price of these would pay for enough grain and meal to keep the farm going till summer came on and conditions were easier. When the hens heard this, they raised a terrible outcry. They had been warned earlier that this sacrifice might be necessary, but did not believe that it would really happen. They were just getting their clutches ready for the spring sitting. And they protested that to take the eggs away now was murder. For the first time since the expulsion of Jones, there was something resembling a rebellion. Led by three black Menorca pullets, the hens made a determined effort to thwart Napoleon's wishes. Their method was to fly up to the rafters and there lay their eggs, which smashed to pieces on the floor. Napoleon acted swiftly and ruthlessly. He ordered the hens' rations to be stopped and decreed that any animal giving so much as a grain of corn to a hen should be punished by death. The dogs saw to it that these orders were carried out. For five days, the hens held out. Then they were catapulted and went back to their nesting boxes. Nine hens had died in the meantime. Their bodies were buried on the orchard, and it was given out that they had died of cosidiosis. Wimper heard nothing of this affair, and the eggs were duly delivered, a grocer's van driving up to the farm once a week to take them away. All while, all this while, no more had been seen of Snowball. He was rumored to be hiding on one of the neighboring farms, either Foxwood or Pinchfield. Napoleon was by this time on slightly better terms with the other farmers than before. It happened that there was a yard, a pile of timber, which had been stacked there 10 years earlier with the beach spinning was cleared. It was well seasoned and Wimper had advised Napoleon to sell it. Both Mr. Pilkington and Mr. Frederick were anxious to buy it. Napoleon was hesitating between the two, unable to make up his mind. It was noticed that whenever he seemed on the point of coming to an agreement with Frederick, Snowball was declared to be hiding at Foxwood, while when he inclined toward Pilkington, Snowball was said to be at Pinchfield. Suddenly, in early spring, an alarming thing was discovered. Snowball was secretly frequenting the farm by night. The animals were so disturbed that they could hardly sleep in their stalls. Every night, it was said. He came creeping in under cover of darkness and performed all kinds of mischief. He stole the corn. He upset the milk pails. He broke the eggs. He trampled the seed beds. He gnawed the bark off the fruit trees. Whenever anything went wrong, it became usual to attribute it to Snowball. If a window was broken or a drain was blocked up, someone was certain to say that Snowball had come in the night and done it. And when the key of the store shed was lost, the whole farm was convinced that Snowball had thrown it down the well. Curiously enough, they went on believing this even after the mislaid key was found under a sack of meal. 
The cows declared unanimously that Snowball crept into their snarls and milked them in their sleep. Snarls. The rats, which had been troublesome that winter, were also said to be in league with Snowball. Napoleon decreed that there should be a full investigation into Snowball's activities. With his dogs in attendance, he set out and made careful tour of inspection of the farm buildings, the other animals following at respectful distance. At every few steps, Napoleon stopped and snuffed the ground for traces of Snowball's footsteps, which, he said, he could detect by the smell. He snuffed in every corner, in the barn, in the cow shed, in the hen houses, in the vegetable garden, and found traces of Snowball almost everywhere. He would put his snout to the ground, give several deep sniffs, and exclaim in a terrible voice, Snowball, he's been here. I can smell him distinctly. And at the word Snowball, all the dogs let out a blood-curdling growls and showed their side teeth. The animals were thoroughly frightened. It seemed to them as though Snowball were some kind of invisible influence pervading the air about them and menacing them with all kinds of dangers. In the evening, Squealer called them together and with an alarmed expression on his face told them that he had had some serious news to report. Comrades, cried Squealer, making little nervous skips, and a most terrible thing has been discovered. Snowball has sold himself to Frederick of Pinchfield Farm, who is even now plotting to attack us and take our farm away from us. Snowball is to act as his guide when the attack begins, but there's worse than that. We had the thought that Snowball's rebellion was caused simply by his vanity and ambition, but we were wrong, comrades. Do you know what the real reason was? Snowball was in league with Jones from the very start. He was Jones's secret agent all the time. It had been provided by documents which he left behind and, with, and which we have had only just discovered. To my mind, this explains a great deal, comrades. Do we not see for ourselves how he attempted, fortunately without success, to get us defeated and destroyed at the Battle of the Cowshed? The animals were stupefied. This was a wickedness far outdoing Snowball's destruction of the windmill, but it was some minutes before they could fully take it in. They all remembered, or thought they remembered, how they had seen Snowball charging ahead of them at the Battle of the Cowshed, and how he had rallied and encouraged them at every turn, and how he had not paused for an instant even when the pellets from Jones's gun had wounded his back. At first, it was a little difficult to see how this fitted in with him being on Jones's side. Even Boxer, who seldom asked questions, was puzzled. He laid down, tucked his four hooves behind him, shut his eyes, and with a hard effort managed to formulate his thoughts. I do not believe that, he said. Snowball fought bravely at the bottle of the cow shed. I saw him myself. Did we not give him animal hero first class immediately afterwards? That was our mistake, comrade. For we now know it is all written down in the secret documents that we have found them that in reality he was trying to lure us into doom. But he was wounded, said Boxer. 
We all saw him running with blood. That was part of the arrangement, cried Squealer. Jones's shot only grazed him. I can show you this in his own writing, if you were able to read it. The plot was for Snowball, at the critical moment, to give the signal for flight and leave the field to the enemy. And he very nearly succeeded. I will even say, comrades. He would have succeeded if it had not been for our heroic leader, Comrade Napoleon. Do you not remember how, just at the moment when Jones and his men had got inside the yard, Snowball suddenly turned and fled, and many animals followed him? Do you not remember, too, that it was just at that moment, when panic was spreading and all seemed lost, that Comrade Napoleon sprang forward with the cry of, Death to humanity! and sank his teeth in Jones's leg? Surely you remember that, comrades, exclaimed Squealer, frisking from side to side. Now, when, when, now, when Squealer described the scene so graphically, it seemed to the animals that they did remember it. At any rate, they remembered that at the critical moment of the battle, Snowball had turned to flee, but Boxer was still a little uneasy. I do not believe that Snowball was a traitor at the beginning, he said finally. But he has done since but he has done since is different. But I believe that at the Battle of the Cowshed he was a good comrade. Our leader, Comrade Napoleon, announced Squealer, speaking very slowly and firmly, has stated categorically categorically, categorically, comrade, that Snowball was Jones's agent from before the beginning. Yes. And from long before the rebellion was ever thought of. Ah, that's different, said Boxer. If Comrade Napoleon says it, it must be right. That's the true spirit, Comrade, cried Squealer. But it was noticed he cast a very ugly look at Boxer with his little twinkling eyes. He turned to go, then paused and added impressively. I warn every animal on this farm to keep his eyes very open. For we have reason to think that some of Snowball's secret agents are lurking amongst us at the moment. Four days later in the late afternoon, Napoleon ordered that all animals to assemble in the yard. When they were all gathered together, Napoleon emerged from the farmhouse wearing both his medals, for he had recently awarded himself Animal Hero First Class and Animal Hero Second Class with his nine huge dogs frisking around him and uttering growls that sent shivers down the animal's spines. They all cowered silently in their places, seeming to know in advance that some terrible thing was about to happen. <coughs> Water. <coughs> okay. <clears throat> Napoleon stood sternly surveying his audience. Then he uttered a high-pitched whimper. Immediately, the dogs bound forward seized four of the pigs by the ear and dragged them, squealing with pain and terror, to Napoleon's feet. The pigs' ears were bleeding, the dogs had tasted blood, and for a few moments they appeared to go quite mad. To the amazement of everybody, three of them flung themselves upon Boxer. Boxer saw them coming and put out his great hoof, caught a dog in midair and pinned him to the ground. The dogs shrieked for mercy, and the other two fled with their tails between their legs. Boxer looked at Napoleon to know whether he should crush the dog to death or let it go. Napoleon appeared to change countenance, and sharply ordered Boxer to let the dog go. 
whereat Boxer lifted his hoof and the dog slunk away, bruised and howling. Presently, the tumult died down. The four pigs waited, trembling, with guilt written on every line of their contents. Napoleon now called upon them to confess their crimes. They were the same four pigs that had protested when Napoleon abolished the Sunday meetings. Without any further prompting, they confessed that they had been secretly in touch with Snowball ever since his expulsion. That they had collaborated with him in destroying the windmill. And that they had entered into agreement with him to hand over Animal Farm to Mr. Frederick. They added that Snowball had privately admitted to them that he had been Jones' secret agent for years past. When they had finished their confession, the dogs promptly tore their throats out, and in a terrible voice, Napoleon demanded whether any other animal had anything to confess. The three hens, who had been the ringleaders in the attempt rebel attempted rebellion over the eggs, now came forward and stated that Snowball had appeared to them in a dream and incited them to disobey Napoleon's orders. They too were slaughtered. When a goose came forward and confessed to having secreted six ears of corn during last year's harvest and eaten them in, all, in the night, then a sheep confessed to having urinated in the drinking pool, urged to do so, she said by Snowball, and two other sheep confessed to having murdered an old ram, an especially devoted follower of Napoleon by chasing him round and round a bonfire when he was suffering from a cough. They were all slain on the spot. And so the tale of confessions and executions went on until there was a pile of corpses lying before Napoleon's feet and the air was heavy with the smell of blood, which had been unknown there since the expulsion of Jones. When it was all over, the remaining animals, except for pigs and dogs, crept away in a body. They were shaken and miserable. They did not know, which was more shocking, the treachery of the animals who had leagued themselves with Snowball or the cruel retribution they had just witnessed. In the old days, there had been senses of bloodshed equally terrible. But it seemed to all of them that it was far worse now that was happening amongst themselves. Since Jones had left the farm, until today, no animal had killed another animal. Not even a rat had been killed. They had made their way to the little knoll where the half-finished windmill stood, and with one accord they all lay down as though huddling together for warmth. Clover, Muriel, Benjamin, the cows, the sheep, and a whole flock of geese and hens, everyone, indeed, except the cat, who had suddenly disappeared just before Napoleon ordered the animals to reassemble. For some time, nobody spoke. Only Boxer remained on his feet. He fidgeted to and fro, swishing his long black tail against his sides and occasionally uttering a little whinny of surprise. Finally, he said, I do not understand it. I would not believe such things could happen in our farm. It must be due to some fault in ourselves. The solution, as I see it, is to work harder. From now onwards, I shall get up a full hour earlier in the mornings. And he moved off at his lumbering trot and made for the quarry. Having got there, he collected two successive loads of stone and dragged them down to the windmill before retiring for the night. The animals huddled, huddled about Clover, 
not speaking. The knoll where they were lying gave them a wide prospect across the countryside. Most of Animal Farm was within their view. The log pasture stretching down to the main road, the hayfield, the spinney, the drinking pool, the plowed fields where the young wheat was thick and green, and the red roofs of the farm buildings with the smoke curling from the chimneys. It was a clear spring evening. The grass from the bustling hedges were gilded by the level rays of the sun. Never had the farm. And with the kind of surprise, they remembered that it was their own farm. Every inch of it, their own property, appeared to the animals so desirable a place. As Clover looked down the hillside, her eyes filled with tears. If she could have had spoken her thoughts, it would have been to say that this was not what they had aimed at when they had set themselves years, set themselves years ago to work for the overthrow of the human race. These scenes of terror and slaughter were not what they had looked forward to on that night when old Major first stirred them into rebellion. If she herself had had any picture of the future, it had been a society of animals set free from hunger and the whip, all equal, each working according to his capacity, the strong protecting the weak, as she had protected the lost brood of ducklings with her foreleg on the night of Major's speech. Instead, she did not know why, they had come to a time when no one dared speak his mind, when fierce, growling dogs roamed everywhere, and when you had to watch your comrades torn to pieces after confessing to shocking crimes. There was no thought of rebellion or disobedience in her mind. She knew that, even as things were, they were far better off than they had been in the days of Jones, and that before all else, it was needful to prevent the return of the human beings. Whatever happened, she would remain faithful, work hard, carry out the orders that were given to her, and accept the leadership of Napoleon. But still, it was not for this that she and all the other animals had hoped and toiled. It was not for that that they had built the windmill and faced the bullets of Jones's gun. Such were her thoughts, though she lacked the words to express them. At last, Feeling this to be in some way a substitute for the words she was unable to find, she began to sing Beast of England. The other animals sitting round her took it up, and they sang it three times over, very tunefully, but slowly and mournfully, in a way they had never sung it before. They had just finished singing it for the third time when Squealer, attended by two dogs, approached them with the air of having something important to say. He announced that, by a special decree of Comrade Napoleon, Beast of England had been abolished. From now onwards, it was forbidden to sing. Whoa, it's got deep. The animals were taken aback. Why, cried Muriel. It's no longer needed, Comrade, said Squealer stiffly. Beast of England was a song of rebellion. But the rebellion is now re complete. The execution of traitors this afternoon was a final act. The enemy, both external and internal, had been defeated. In Beast of England, we were expressed our longing for a better society in days to come. But that society has now been established. Clearly, the song has no purpose any longer. Frightened though they were, some of the animals might possibly have protested. But at this moment... The sheep set up their usual bleeding of, 
four legs good, two legs bad, which went on for several minutes and put an end to the discussion. So, Beast of England was heard no more. In his place, Minimus, the poet, had composed another song which began, Animal farm, animal farm, never through me shalt thou come to harm. And this was sung every Sunday morning after the hoisting of the flag. But somehow, neither the words nor the tune ever seemed to the animals to come up to Beast of England. Alrighty. Thank you for joining me. I love you. See you tomorrow.